This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by Electric Monk Media and the short film Don't Waste a Precious Minute, directed by Mark Green, now available on Steam. Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. Okay, so this is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made, and uh, we have a very robust cast for you today. Um, to my immediate right, Matt from At Bay Press is going to talk to us about running a press. Um, next to him is Michael Saunders, who is with Electric Monk Media, and he is going to talk to you about making movies and telling stories with moving pictures. And then, whether you like it or not, our long-suffering co-host... Justin Curry has I just arrived. I don't want to be here either, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the gentlemen have arrived without any uh, prior knowledge or planning. In fact, each of my guests believe they were the only guests today. Yeah, I've, it's a bit of an ambush. Yeah, it's a bit of an ambush. But <laughs> here's the thing, gentlemen. I feel bad for Matt because he came obviously prepared with a, a nice stack of books. Well, we have a whole hour to talk about that. But let's first <laughs> just, I'll introduce why it is I have both of you here together. Uh, it's that both of you I view as being disruptors in your field. Both of you have taken um, the pre-existing models of, in your case, Mike filmmaking, in your case, Matt bookmaking, and said, the done way isn't necessarily for us. We're going to reinvent <laughs> some of those wheels and do it our own way. And I've had success regardless. Right. And uh, we all know Justin doesn't care about any rules. So I thought the three of you and maybe I could have a pretty good conversation about that. Sounds good. But before that, let's talk about our shared loves. <laughs> you brought something. Uh, you brought a pile of stuff. I know this is basically radio, but um, in the uh, I can't even. So I'm looking right now. Matt brought us the co brought us a copy. What what grade is this? This has got to be like. Yeah, it's nice high grade. It's, it's startling like comics. Maybe a seven already of uh, startling comics number fifty one. He's got a startling comics here. Oh, wow. This is written. If you lose this, uh, 50. He's got a weird <laughs> science fantasy, number 27. Tell me about this, what you brought for us. Uh, well, I, I mean, uh, it was just based on previous episodes that, uh, that I'd listened to of your, like, of your show and, of course, the title of the show. So I just thought it'd be fun to actually bring in some, you know, some, some, some weird science, some pulp, some, some stuff that's... I mean, you guys have been talking about uh, that you guys mentioned on the show. I know you guys have mentioned Lovecraft before. And, Tell um, us about this November issue, 1937, of The Shadow that you brought. Um, okay, well, you know, it's, um, I mean, The Shadow, I think, is, 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 is kind of the, uh, the, 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 the penultimate, like, kind of, you know, pulp character. Um, I, I mean, The Shadow has appeared on radio. Um, been voiced by Orson Welles, uh, among others. Um, you know, obviously the magazine, the comics, the movies. I mean, it's 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 so pulpy and and yet continues to survive even even now in our sort of like modern <laughs> age. But uh, this this particular uh, pulp was, uh, you know, I think it was what 1940. I think it says on the cover here, 1937. Yeah. Yeah. There wow. you go. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, you know, at this period in time, you know, a lot of the a lot of the stuff being published, uh, both in book format, you know, we'll call them, uh, you know, pocketbooks and that kind of thing. There was an obsession with uh, the mystical orient, and of course, uh, the shadow is uh, is is embroiled in this uh, 
this mystery in this book of basically the, turned cultural appropriation into a superpower here. Yeah, right? exactly. I'm looking at the cover, the mystery of the East and the action of the West in one. Complete you know, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, these these things can't be sold now uh, without uh, without being faced with uh, and and rightly so some uh, some definite questions about uh, that. You know, you bring up the appropriation and uh, that kind of thing. But but the uh, shadow is definitely one of those first ones that spanned. Like all media. Yeah, for sure. Right? You could yeah, everything. Turn on the radio without seeing the shadow. You can yeah. go to the newsstand without seeing the shadow. Huge character. Right? Yeah. Um, so that brings us around to you, Mr. Sanders. You in that, make, in you, that I'm a shadow. In that you're a shadow and you're a shadowy figure. So you take uh, stories from all kinds of places. Uh, why don't you tell our, list, our dear listeners a little about what kind of stuff you do? Um... I don't know. I think that's a terrible question. That's a terrible oh. question? What would be a better question? <laughs> <laughs> that's the first one. <laughs> the thing I've come the to worst, know about the, Mike. The reason, the reason I think it's a, is that I'm the worst person at describing what the hell it is that, that, uh, that I do. So We were talking about this when you arrived, the way that uh, on the outside of a rocket, you can see its trajectory and you can see it like rise towards yeah. the stratosphere and you're like, oh, yeah. look, it's going to make it. Yeah. But inside the rocket, you're, you're just, just suffering G-forces and, and drifting in and out of consciousness. That's right. Yeah. So that's where you, you're inside <laughs> the rocket. Out of consciousness. I feel like I'm drifting in and out of consciousness on a daily basis. Yep. <laughs> yep. All right. So you got your start. Well, when I first met you, you were acting, you were uh, shooting. Yeah, you I were had a very short-lived acting were, career. Yeah. yeah, you were doing all kinds of stuff. Now you're yeah. a producer, you shoot documentary films, yeah. you uh, write and create your own content for yeah, film. Yeah, I shoot, I edit. Um, I mean, mostly in the last, I'd say, two, three years, I've spent most of my creative time editing. Um, not in a little bit of shooting, but, pri you know, I started as a photographer. Okay, so one, one thing that I find particularly interesting about um, the creative fields is they have the same word and it means a lot of different things in Which a lot of different ways. So in your case, when you say editing for film, describe what that process really is. Well, editing for film is putting together sequences of images or to borrow from someone much smarter than me who I can't remember who said it. It's the sequencing of uninflicted images to create a cohesive meaning okay. wasn't it orson wells to um, bring him up again i don't know why but wasn't it him that said that uh, a movie doesn't really take shape until it gets into the editing room oh yeah yeah and That's when it does get hit the editing room and start to take shape it constantly shifts its form and again for the uh for the listener an editor has not necessarily been involved in any of the shooting process for the right? most part yeah but i mean i've always I've never edited on a project that I wasn't involved right. as either the cinematographer um, primarily. I mean, the last two documentaries that I edited, I didn't do all of the shooting, so there was an element where I was working with someone else's material and bringing it in and that kind of thing. But in the film world, being an editor makes you a better cinematographer, makes you a better director, it makes you a better. It makes you better at everything because you actually, the editor is the one that gets all the stuff when you're on set. If you're not exposed to the editing, you think that everything you're getting is the worst, or everything you're getting is gold. It's very rare that you're <laughs> in the middle, right. right? And if you feel like everything is gold, that's probably a bad sign. Yeah. You should probably be on the other of thinking everything you're getting is a, is. I don't think we're getting it. I don't think we're getting it. But it feels like we might be. So let's just keep going. 
Okay. And now for book in book world, right. tell us the job of the editor. Uh, well, I mean, it's in in many ways it's it's similar. Um, you know, I, I mean, we're uh, probably uh, just you know going back to what Mike was saying. It, it, it's it's interesting because I was thinking about Mike's scenario, which is I'm assuming he's he's working in a bit of a smaller op rather than say like a large Hollywood studio. And yeah, God no. Right, no, yeah. and so you, you the reason that you were saying I think the reason that you were saying, you know that that you actually do get to see a lot of the production and a lot of the the filmmaking and, and the cinematography is because you're a smaller op. You're yeah, more involved. You, absolutely, there's, there's more hands on deck. Yeah, and and it's the same for us. I mean, we're not uh, we're not a massive conglomerated publisher. Uh, you know, we're we're we've always kind of felt like we were a family. You know, sort of. Operation, which is kind of true, and because of that, uh, you know, uh, writers, you know, writers write. They write their manuscript. Uh, artists do their illustrations, um, and then that stuff gets submitted to us, or um, we discover it uh, through festivals or conventions, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but the work is either done or um, being pitched to us. Um, and then, you know, after that is completed, we, we you know, after we have a, 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 a full-length manuscript uh, ready to go, that's when the editor is involved. So the editor doesn't actually see the work until there is work. Right. You know, there, there, there's, very, uh, there's very few times. I'm not a big fan of, of pitches unless I really know the, uh, the artist or the author quite well. I'm familiar with their work. Right. Right. Uh, I like to be able to see because like, every I always feel like everybody has a great idea for a book. There's tons of people. Everybody has. Everybody could write a book. I mean, they've lived a life, right? So they could write a book. Uh, but until they actually do the work, uh, I don't care. <laughs> the shadow knows. I have a question for the three of you. Mm. You can just answer numerically. In the past year or two, how many times have you heard the phrase, I have a great idea for a book, movie, graphic novel? Tons. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All yeah. the time. Mostly I, from the inside of my own head. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, and, and, and like and it's lots the same, of people. Sorry, Matt. It's the same yeah, response. You feel like you're pitching yourself, and you're yeah. like, well, that sounds like a great idea. But when you actually do it, I'll pay attention. Yeah. 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 That's usually my response too. Is like, what have you done so far? Yeah. yeah. And when the answer is nothing, it's like, well, I don't believe you're going to do this one either. Yeah. 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 There's that, and then also too, a lot of great ideas um, are great ideas until they actually get down on paper, and then you realize, oh man, I wasn't able to flesh this out properly. Yeah. They realize it's a lot of work. That too. <laughs> yeah. But it's like you know, um, you know, well, it, an idea is just an idea until you actually have like th th these are these are these are these are people who haven't even. Um, they haven't even created a synopsis uh, for us to, to look at, right? An idea sounds good, but on, eventually at the end of the day, you have uh, you know, an iPod and a Zune sitting on the table side by side each other, yeah. right? <laughs> They're the same idea, basically. I think so. also, like, we, we're, our translator from our brain's like, idea cloud to the, the paper, we've gotten good at that translation. That's so we right. know what that idea is going to look like on page. Right. When you're starting out, that translator sucks. So what seems like a great idea, once it gets here, it's, it's a bit of a mess. And that's what I think practice in making things does. It gets that translation from what's up here to what's down and here what's better. what's interesting for you as a... The key is finishing. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah, but for you as a film finishing. editor, it, the, the step is different. So you go from idea, right, to shooting, 
collect everything, right, to the edit. Whereas in your case, for the book, you'd rather have the book finished yeah. and then edit it. There's a, I think, a slightly different. Uh, well, there step is in there. at least for us. I mean, if we don't, if we don't actually have something to work on, then we're not going to go to. We're not. We're not going to invest our people into. Uh, a project that is right now just an idea. I don't care how good it is. Um, you know, it, it's this, this part of it too is, is I just, I want to be able to see that you, that you are invested, that you are going to go the distance and get the work done. Um, and that's only half the battle. Um, and don't get me wrong. Uh, we will publish books by people who are, uh, authors who are, are very introverted, who don't want to do shows, who don't want, uh, you know, their work is very good. We're not going to not put a book out, but uh, I always feel that if you want your book to be successful, you really have to be able to get behind it. Right. So that's the, the, the writing the manuscript or or doing the illustrations is 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 part one. Part two now is is uh, is getting behind the book and and um, and and getting it into readers' hands. That's partly our job as well. We have to market it properly. We have to distribute it properly. Um, we we have to have our sales force go into bookstores and make sure it gets on s shelves. But, um, I mean, the author, the artist, they are the number one reason that people are going to pick up the book. Is that not true, like, across the board? Like, from a smaller publisher up to, like, somebody like Barnes & Noble, if the author isn't on board with pushing it, isn't like don't you don't you still need that when when you're working with a huge publisher like you need that person yeah, on that's the a good question for both. on the ground going to all sure. these events and showings and signings and sure like you, regardless of the the scale yeah I mean uh, uh, there's there's a handful of uh, anomalies uh, you know you, you take like Thomas Pynchon I mean this is this is a person who refuses to appear in public um, he hasn't had a photograph taken from him since his high school days wow. you know what I mean like but his books sell really well but that's a very rare case. And then you, you go on the flip side to somebody like Stephen King who has appeared everywhere, who's so prolific. Um, I mean, there, yeah, there are cases where it, where it can still work, but for the most part, um, you, you do have to get behind your book as, as, as the artist or the author. You do, have to, you do have to appear at bookstores. You have to appear... No, I wonder... Like here's a question for you, Mike. I see the way that people promote books, the author-illustrator team, you know, it's usually one, maybe three people, maybe four or five at the outside might have to get behind it and sort of speak for the work, right? The publisher has arranged distribution, but the work itself you can sort of pin on three or four people. Do you think there's a danger in a director being the person who you pin all your hopes and dreams on, knowing that there are literally hundreds of people involved in the making of the film? like? Is that a counterintuitive? We've come to expect it from authors and from media producers, but is it bad when, you know, one person is now speaking for, you know, an entire team of hundreds? Well, I think it's more efficient. Yeah. I think it's just a function of, would you like, you know what I mean? Like, like what are you talking about in terms of... Well, this like cult of celebrity that has grown up around... You know, and, you know, Justin and I kind of trade on it a little bit at shows. You know, you try to make a name for yourself and yeah, then you trade on that isn't name. That, I mean, I think that to a certain extent, the cult of celebrity is a function of just human laziness. You know, we don't want to have to invest a lot of time in making decisions, so we look for shortcuts to indicate what would be a good way to go. 
Mm. And so if you've come to trust somebody and you've come to trust their work, you know, like I will watch, for example, I watched Phantom Thread last week, right? right? I love Paul Thomas Anderson. You know, I'm not the hugest, you know, I'm not a sycophant of Daniel Day-Lewis, but I love Paul Thomas Anderson. And, you know, you read the synopsis for that film and it's about a guy, it's about a dressmaker in like the 30s and it's described as a psychosexual drama. (laughs) Only the last half of that do I find interesting. And even then, I'm not even sure what a psychosexual drama is. (laughs) And so there's a lot of there. There's a lot of questions already when I'm approaching about to invest two hours of my life into 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 this thing. But I also believe that it's important, more important than ever nowadays to be an active audience member. And I I believe that watching films is an active. It's an that's an activity. And if you're just sitting there, letting it wash over you you're being lazy. You're yeah. not actually engaged in the piece. It should be uh, an equivalent act to reading a book. There are, like, you're reading, you should be reading the images, you should be following along. Anyways, I invest, you know, I invested in that film because of Paul Thomas Anderson, and I was rewarded at the end because I, I loved it. But it was, you know, going in. But, you know, coming back to what you said, I think it's fine to let one person represent the work of, a, of many if they're representing it somewhat truthfully and consistently. But I think that once those people sort of mess up, you know, it definitely comes back to bite them. As an aside, and as the host of Super Pulp Science, I feel like the Phantom Thread would be a great pulp character. It's all... <laughs> the Phantom Thread, right? Like, and would I'll it be, be spi- honest, it's got a little bit of the... You know, like, pulp stories have this air of mystery and absurdity and weirdness that under underline the whole and that's what that that film has a thread of weirdness and unease and tension that runs through it that you don't expect reading the synopsis of the film well let's do what modern comics have done a lot throw away everything but the name and the phantom thread what is the phantom thread it's a haunted dress it's a haunted dress it's the haunted dress oh i like that it's a haunted dress and then if it's a pulp is it a murder mystery or is it horror is it a radio drama or is it a pulp story? We're reimagining the entire oh, I think universe. It could be here. all those things. Yeah, it could sure. be a dress that like somewhat disintegr- like disintegrates over time and then gets re-sewn into other. It could be like the picture of Dorian Gray, but a, like a dress. Yeah, yeah it's always coming right. back. <laughs> right, the terrible things that you do when you wear it. Right, only show on the dress, but never well, on you. While the pictures moldering in the attic. Yeah. It's a great idea, but I mean, until you do it. Yeah, until you, yeah, do, until it. you do it, yeah. <laughs> Do it! Do it! Come on! Kill me! I'm here! Come on! Do it now! The three of you uh, broke all the rules, right? You said no. I disagree. You disagree? I I don't believe. I don't. I'm yeah. I a I don't think that there's. Um, hmm, I think that statement leans on that there are rules. There there are rules. There I are. think that there's any number of ways to do things. Like, there's not one path to get there, right. but there's a few proven okay, let me ways re- to get there. Let maybe. me rephrase that, and Dan can decide whether we edit it to seem like I was in control of the podcast <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> the three of you have taken the path less traveled. Okay. Uh, right. Well, I, 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 like, for us in publishing, there are definitely <laughs> rules, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, that, we, that, that we, if, I mean, for instance, if we want a government grant, we have to follow very strict rules, um, and we break those all the time. Right. Because, 
I mean, again, w we didn't get into it thinking we were going to get that money, um, and we don't rely on that money. Uh, so for us, um, if if a book is great and it it it, it doesn't meet uh, you know certain guidelines that the government stipulates uh, in order to get you know a government grant, we're we don't care. We're going to deviate from that because we're, we want to put the best possible book out. We're not going to uh, we're not going to water it down um, so that it so that we can get fifteen hundred bucks or two thousand bucks towards printing. Um, you know, we'll find the money and we'll we'll put the book out. Um, that's that's us. Um, and and often our books uh, don't meet uh, you know government standards and uh, to hell with them. So for people listening who are not Canadian citizens wondering what are we talking about with this granting system? <laughs> um, are the Canadian government provides support to uh, publishers across this great nation in order to see that authors are more widely distributed and widely read? But there are lots of loopholes that you have to jump through to have access to that money. Sure. And if you want to be a bit of a disruptor and go a little against the status quo, then you're not going to receive that funding for good or Do ill. Do you have any idea what that committee looks like of people who are deciding, here's what we want the money to go? Like, Do they just see a gap in our, our publishing I like to Sector imagine them all as um, all the villains from the Dick Tracy novels yeah, yeah. Like sitting around. <laughs> Flap top. <laughs> I, I mean, I can tell you who they are. Um, they are industry peers um, that are selected, uh, you know, by, if we're talking Canada Council, they're selected by the Canada Council uh, for the Arts. Um, and the, they, they, you know, they sit down and they assess your submission package and determine whether or not, uh, and, and, and just because you got a grant in the past doesn't mean you'll get one again. Um, so each year is Are is these a volunteer struggle. positions or paid positions? Kind of council, mm. do you know? Uh, I, I actually think that, you know what? I don't want to say because I don't know for sure. I'm assuming they're volunteer. Yeah, my assumption well, is that. My follow-up was, um, like, do you have any interest of being part of this council? Like, have you ever looked into helping? <laughs> help, yeah, joining aren't they and helping. Juries? Like, aren't they just like? Don't they just assemble a different jury for every? They, it's a different. Yeah. It's a different group of individuals okay. every year. Okay, um, so depending on the year, who's looking at your book changes. Well, yes, huh. and so the the really big problem for us is is that being from Manitoba, Manitoba publisher, uh, there hasn't been a Manitoban on the uh, the jury in, geez, two decades. Wow. Right, and so uh, also Manitoba receives the least amount of awarded grants, um, so it's really like so it's really tough. I'm not I'm not saying that the Canada Council is biased. I'm just saying that uh, that's how it's been set up for for quite some time. Most of the money people goes have to a it. tendency to uh, pass the ball to people on their team, though, right? That and most of the money goes to Ontario and Quebec. I mean, there's more publishers. There's yeah. more publishers. There's more submissions, like just from a factor of odds. You yeah. think mm -hmm. that the odds are you're going to see more going. money going to those places. Yeah, yeah. for sure. All so, right. yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. yeah. So what paths have you avoided in your... What paths have... Yeah. Well, I... Uh, I'm particularly interested in this decision that um, Electric Monk made to um, combine video game production and film production under the same roof. Was there a model or a company that you guys were trying to emulate at any one point, or have you always just kind of been doing your thing and hoping it turns out? 
Uh, I personally have always just been doing my thing, yeah, hoping yeah. that it turns out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I noticed, I, uh, I'd i say about five, six years ago now, um, I was in the middle of finishing a film called Men With Beards. And uh, I was working with my friend Dylan Fries on that. And he was working for a video game company in Newfoundland. And uh, so we were just talking about a lot of things. And um, at that time, it just seemed like the future was heading towards uh, as video cards are getting better and as the technology is getting better and the game engines are getting better, there's a lot more you can do in those game engines. And uh, that, to me, seemed like... um, the same, it was going to have the same effect that uh, the same sort of technological advances have had in the film industry. That if you want to make something, you can make it. You don't need a 60 person crew, and a, uh, a, as I'm sure a lot of people are going to disagree, you don't need to shoot everything on a red epic, and you don't need to, sh- you know, like not, you don't need an IMAX camera to make a, f- a movie. Yeah. You don't need a team of 400 people to make a video game. And at that time, that was already a that was already a truism. Indie games were raging, and they were you know they and they still are, and it's its own mark. It's crazy, huge, successful genre. It's of, usually uh, two to four games. people crews. Yeah, they're small just, teams. Yeah. But what they're capitalizing on is the power of these game engines. That at one point you had to pay a lot of money to license, and then suddenly Unity comes out and just gives the whole kit and caboodle away for free, basically. Yeah. But what I noticed was that there was starting to be um, the things that were being done in real time in the game engines were things that at one point you were rendering out and having to do um, over hours or days or, or whatnot. And I just figured as that was getting better, the, the, co- the collision of, of um, what that technology, what am I trying to say? Uh, I have I, so in developing countries, there's this interesting thing that has happened since the development of cell phones, right? So if you go to Paris, for example, not a developing nation, uh, there is um, this thing that goes on where there's all this infrastructure that was built up that represents the history and development of telephone technology. Yeah, yeah. But in a developing nation. They don't have any of that infrastructure. They don't have any of that backlog. They don't have to rebuild anything. They don't have to tear down anything. They just jumped from one system past 20 or 30 years to the new current system, right? And I see that in what you guys are doing is that you looked at the status of both industries and you said, okay, we're going to leverage existing technology today to skip over needing, you know, a 60-person film team or, a, you know, an entire... Uh, yeah, uh, I think that you still, you know, I wouldn't shy away from a 60-person crew. Don't get me wrong. It would be lovely to have that sort of resource for, for a film. But not necessary. But it's not necessary. Yeah, and um, I just find that my sort of trajectory so far, I tend to shy away from working on projects where I have to give up a certain degree of control. And I'm with Mike on that one. Yeah, I just feel like it's not it's it's not necessary. Um, 
So is it the bigger part but of you I that doesn't that want to give up control or the smaller part of you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Both. <laughs> I, I just, uh, you know, for me, it's, 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 not a, it's not an ego thing at all, really. Um, at least I hope that's the case. Um. <laughs> well, it is your ego, don't you know? But embrace it. I mean, it's. I think it's there for a reason. Well, I just find know? that that. I mean, I just find for us, um, we work better with uh, people that we trust. Smaller group. Um, you know, it, going back to what Mike said. Uh, I mean, I think I would get. I think I would get afraid if we had you know, a hundred people at our disposal, um, you know, based on, based on our mandate, based on what we publish, based on how we work. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if, uh, if I would be, uh, happy to have that going on. I think that right now, um, we have a, a really tight knit group of people that we work with. We, we trust them. We know their work. Uh, we know how they work. We can we can count on them to meet deadlines, um, and that sort of thing. And in the publishing industry, deadlines are are everything. So if we don't if we don't meet those, uh, the repercussions are you know substantial. So uh, we have to have that in place. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir. The check is in the mail. What makes a good story? <laughs> Um, We're sitting around this table with all this great stuff. They got us all really excited. These weird fantasy volumes you brought. Yeah. These first editions of H.P. Lovecraft's collections. <laughs> Dear listeners, you've never seen a more perfect copy of an Arkham House publishing edition. Yeah. The Mask of Cthulhu. Keep your eye on that. It might go missing yeah. before yeah, you no take kidding. off today. They only brought the one. Right? <laughs> yeah. Is that it? Also, dreams. And, but what makes something good, and how do you know that you've got it? Um... Well, I think I think it's like anything. I think it's like if you're in the music industry, um, having a good A and R person working for you who who one knows good music, uh, knows if there's a market for it. Uh, I mean, we've turned down we've turned down uh, books that that aren't for us that are good books. Um, you know, we've we've said to the to the author, you know, unfortunately, it's just not something we feel we can properly bring to the trade uh and that's 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 i think a very good thing because the last thing we want to do is take on a project that is going to be somewhat of a detriment to the author uh meaning that we can't we just it's not our cup of tea we're, we're not we're not good at it um but when it comes to fiction we're very good at it um and we know what we're doing so now you're talking as a publisher i want you to talk as an individual what as an individual, because you, for example, Denver, you brought this incredible um, uh, limited run copy of Alters and Jesters by Robert E. Howard. There's only yeah. 200. What does it say? 260 yeah, copies in the world. Of right. This yeah. Um, but <laughs> what you talked about was not Robert E. Howard. You immediately named the editor. OK. Uh, yeah. OK. So, um, I mean, so if you admire this editor, you must think that there is a way sure. to know quality. Yes, there is a way to know quality. Um, I mean, when it comes to a story, uh, at least in 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 um, you know in books, if 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 I can't get into the uh, the the book in the first few pages, I, I don't know why I'm reading it. Um, I mean, there there has to be there has to be 
uh, an intensity, uh, a form of pace, uh, an understanding of, of the written word and how it lies on the page in order for me to uh, to want to keep reading. I'm okay with uh, with uh, you know pace differential somewhere in the middle of the book uh, where you slow things down, you concentrate on characters or or setting um, something, uh, but you know. Uh, ultimately, it's just got to read well. It's just, uh, I mean, the, the, the for for you, uh, Greg, you know, in the in the in the graphic world, it's it's different. Um, I think because you have to take you have to take uh, you have to take that visual component. Um, you know, have to you have to take that, and you have to work with that. So well, somebody in, like in graphic novels, you have this great trick. Because people pick up a book and they flip through it, and they know immediately whether they like it, mm -hmm. because they have a visceral, immediate response to the art. Okay. Or they know it right away if they don't like it. And right. no amount of words, very rarely, I should say, in the comic book world, will the words sway a person beyond art they don't like. like sure. You just won't put up with it. But do you trust them? Do I trust those people? Yeah. Um, I mean, where I'm going with this is is that there is a big difference between I'm going to use Will Eisner or or Mark Schultz um, as as artists and writers. There's a big difference between their work and a lot of what the comic book industry is churning out, which is mostly trash. Right. And and the reason is is that you you know somebody like Will Eisner, you take him for example. Um, you know, he used to say that if if you want to create mood, you're going to need a couple bottles of ink. Right. right, and that's because it's going to be thick. It's going to be rich. There's going to be a lot of lights and dark contrast, and I believe that he's one of the first people who ever, uh, you know, and Mike can maybe uh, speak to this to some degree. Understanding uh, film perspective in the sequential art medium. Well, Will Eisner in particular, he you know broke up panel layouts. He broke up. He was a disruptor in his own medium. Absolutely. You know, we don't need these panels. I'll just yeah. draw the building to be the panels. Yeah. Right? Or we don't need to have a title page. I'm going to draw the building as the title for sure. the spirit with the character walking in front. You know, he busted up a lot of rules. So he's, a, you know, I like that you like him. But he's not indicative of his peers at the time. No, of course not. His peers at the time were doing uh, a lot of trash, too. Um, you know, comic books were... The comic books were based on the cover. You had Alex Schomburg do this unbelievable, um, you know, detailed, intricate cover, and then you flip the first to the first page, and it's rudimentary illustrations that are by uh, you know staffers that were being paid minimum wage to, you know, who didn't even get credit for their work, a and you know, but like you know, going back to Will Eisner, you take uh, you take something like. Uh, you know where he would he would uh, thin out his panels uh, to to create quicker pace. Mm -hmm. I mean, just having that that understanding changes the whole entire medium, um, so that you are uh, you know transcending uh, the actual page itself, right? So, do you think? Go ahead. Well, I was going to say I'm. Um, I think that what you're talking about is exactly. I'm going to answer both questions. Justin's question, why we did what we did, and your question. <laughs> like I a good editor, you'll just splice them together. Well, because I realized that uh, what Dan's going to have an issue with is that I actually never answered your question, and so there's a big rambling bit with no ending. He has, and if uh, I was facing with that in the edit suite, I'd be like, we got to cut that whole thing because that poor bastard didn't finish his thought. <laughs> um, 
I think that's part that, of the fun, though, Mike. That's part of the fun, yeah. He has a black mark beside your name here. So um, I think here. that um, all of these, I think there's something, I, I think all of these artistic disciplines share a fundamental uh, language, and I think that they all borrow from one another. I think that uh, what you're talking about in panel design and panel layouts in a graphic novel is, is equivalent to uh, the theory of montage in film editing. And... You know, For our dear listeners, exactly why don't you expand that? Oh, I don't know if I'm that articulate to expand on that. Mm -hmm. uh, well, what we said earlier, I mean, an, an editor creates sequences of uninflicted images that together create a cohesive meaning or emotion or whatnot, but taken individually don't carry that same weight. So, so in a graphic novel panel, you take a single one of those panels, doesn't have the same weight or emotion or message as four panels um, strung together. So when I was first starting out in comics, uh, someone asked me, you know, I was like, what do I need to know about like writing stories and building up, you know, worlds with words and pictures together? Like, give me some pointers. And they said, listen, here's a great trick that you could do. I wish I could remember who said it. It was at a show somewhere. It was someone who was just doing indie books and they were just like, you know, they were kind of where I thought I wanted to start. And they said, you know, do you have a, you know, have a computer at home? You have Photoshop now. You can skip a bunch of steps that other people don't have. Do you have a sketchbook? Yes, I have a sketchbook. Do you have nine drawings at least in your sketchbook? I was like, yeah. They're like, then make a nine-panel grid in Photoshop and put those images. And I was like, well, they don't, they're not related to each other. He said, they will be as soon yeah. as they're in context with one another on that page. Yeah. And then you look at that page and ask yourself, what is the story? Yeah. And I guess that's what Everything's you do as an connected. Editor. Yeah. Yeah. So the name of our company is taken from a Douglas Adams book called uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. And the books have nothing to do with that bullshit series on Netflix. Right. <laughs> but, um, um, and in the book, it's a detective that solves crimes by putting together clues that seemingly aren't connected at all. But in the grand scheme of things, it's like this weaving path of connectivity and I've just like I was given that book when I was 10 years old by my grandmother and it probably formed my entire worldview and just this idea that everything is connected and like you said like I've you know in film a, a lot of times when you're putting together this stuff you're not even sure what though what it's about until you start seeing things beside one another and shots even like the short that you and I did uh, two summers ago, yeah. Uh, don't waste a precious minute. Um, there are whole sequences in that film that weren't in the script, right. that weren't uh, anywhere, but had to, but were put together from a series of shots that were never related in any way whatsoever, but f ended up forming the connective tissue of the scenes. Because we were all, it was sort of like what you were saying, you just have to start. You just have to and start. And then you have yeah. to finish. Yeah. And yeah. then you organize what you have left yeah. over. Yeah. yeah. And in a lot of times, and I'm sure this is the, I mean, you, you, have to, you have to start, you have to finish, and then you have to take a second, right. or a day, or a month, and right. you have to then look back at what you've made with fresh eyes, and suddenly the thing that you were in love with before is you want to get rid of it as fast as you can. <laughs> Sure. You know. Dogs, half-wits, bunglers, brainless idiots. You couldn't even beat a motley group of gnomes. Get out of my sight. So have you, either of you, ever finished a project yourselves that you knew was no good? Oh, I have a whole, uh, 
I have a whole, you know, dead letter office, man. Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, just folders of, of, of junk. It, you know, there are fragments in there that I like, and so I, I keep everything because I like to go back to, to it for two reasons. One, you never know, the idea could be sound, and I just have to rework it. Or two, um, it shows progression. There's uh, also a sort of a third, I think, option there is that sure. most of us book people are hoarders. Yeah. Right? Deep down, I have like all these plastic bins in our basement of all these crazy ideas I've had since I was like 14 that I kept for. There's no way I'm going to go look at them again. <laughs> yeah. There's no way. It's just a fire hazard in yeah. my basement. Right? And every time I hold them, I'm like, one day I'm going to look through here and the perfect idea for a book that I'm able to make now will be in there. You should just cut it all up and put it together, man. Yeah, maybe I will. Yeah. You know, I tried to purge all of my, uh, my high school work at one point and uh, a, fr a friend was uh, <laughs> a friend advised against it. He was like, you know, don't throw that stuff away. Like, um, it shows that, that progression of... Uh, anything from you know the quality of your work to style to what was influencing you as a younger person, um, and I think there's some there's some merit there's some foundation that's 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 good to to, to keep around. I mean, I have projects from uh, you know from design class from college or uh, uh, you know animation shorts from animation class in college and and i look back on this stuff and most of it's crap you know <laughs> like i there's a reason why i you know i was doing what i was doing at the time i mean you know because it was due <laughs> you know but um you know it shows where you know it shows the progression of your work the quality of your work right so okay so you said because it was due we've all brought up deadlines i think on this show so far um what is your relationship with the deadline? Mike? <laughs> Especially because of your expression, Mike. I think you should go first. Well, I'm facing a deadline right now. We're, gonna, we're not going to hit it. We're going to push it because... Um, that happens. We're not going... Uh, we're working on a documentary right now. Um, and I'm giving the opportunity to my assistant editor to do more of the editing. And um, he's just, you know, starting out and diving in and... You know, is he going to, we're going to have, a, you know, we're supposed to have a rough cut sort of this week. Are we going to have a, probably not. We'll probably have a rough episode this week. And then we'll probably go into the end of May before we're done. But, you know, we're going to be about, at the most, I think we'll be a month late. But how do you know when giving more time will make it better or just make it later? You, uh, it's just a gut reaction. Yeah. 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 What are, I'm curious, uh, you know, what are... What are the repercussions for you by uh, by pushing a? Uh, That's right, dear listeners. Because if you miss well, your distributor deadline as a book guy, it's yeah. Bad news. So this project is not necessarily it. Like yes, we've said that we can deliver by that time. But if we give, you know, we'll give an update probably in a week or so when we deliver some roughs, mm -hmm. um, and they'll likely be fine with it. It's not. It's. Um, I'm also know we can do that because of our relationship with the broadcaster. So, and you know they don't need it at that particular time. W the repercussion it has for us is that uh, budgets usually when you're working with a broadcaster are based on hitting milestones so that you can get your next drawdown of cash. Right. So we will delay that drawdown of cash. Yeah, that's a big one. But we're yeah. talking about such a relatively small amount of money that um, it won't really affect us. And since we're f basically financing the project ourselves, 
the situation for us really hasn't changed. Because we're able to sort of finance the project ourselves, we can make this decision. If we weren't in this position mm -hmm. to be able to do that, I would be pulling very late nights over the next uh, few weeks. Yep. Right. So I have a clarifying question for the both of you mm -hmm. and also for our listeners. Uh, what is, when a book is finished right. uh, and due to the distributor, right. what is usually the space of time between the finished project being on your desk and being in the hands of the distributor? Well, there are massive lead times in publishing. So uh, for us, um, we need to make sure that the books are in our, our distributor's warehouse about, at, I, I like to have them there at least three months before uh, a pub date. But that's not the only uh, you know deadline that we're faced with, or at least uh, imposed deadline, self-imposed maybe to some degree. But um, you know, part of that is is that uh, when when a book comes out, uh, when it's announced through our distributor's catalog, um, it's almost a year in advance, and that's you know to gauge uh, you know reader interest. Uh, Bookseller interest, I should say. And so you get pre-orders that way too. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So that's the point: is is that you you can you can almost somewhat begin to determine what the print run is going to be like based on those pre-orders. But uh, part of that too is is that if you want a book to sell well, you've got to do some advanced marketing behind it, and you want to make sure that you get uh, books out to uh, you know uh, advanced copies to to your sales force, to your to your bookstores, uh, to critics. Uh, for reviews, um, you know, periodicals. Uh, there's, there's a whole list of different things that you you want to you because you're because you're building that momentum, right? And then you also give the the author and or artist uh, time to uh, you know begin to uh, self market it on their end through whatever their social media channels, their friends, their family, uh, bookstores that they have great relationships with, conventions like you guys do, festivals. Um, you know, appear on uh, various different uh, media outlets like this, um, that sort of thing, right? So for you... Yeah, I think it's exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah, I think it depends on the project, and I think it depends on what your plan is for the release, but... But one um, major difference here is that you don't necessarily know, you know, there's no pre-order step. Well, it depends. I mean, if we were doing, if we were... You know, there is that model for indie films where you're crowdfunding and you're basically just pre-selling your DVD, you know, and so you're trying to pre-sell as many DVDs as you can to get your 10 or 20 grand or 50 grand to go to go shoot your, your film. So that model exists. I think there's a lot of variance in the film side in how you get something out too. I mean, that short film that we did, um, I gave the director, I gave Mark an option. I said, if you... We can either put this in festivals for the next year, or I'll get it. Mm -hmm. I'll get it on a platform in two weeks. Yeah, because it was up mm. on Steam. Wasn't it, it was up on Steam, and we had a relationship with a distributor who could get us up there in a matter of days, basically. Um, as long as it took for me to make the the banner art and put the package together, it was as fast as we could get it up. And you know, and and I let him make that decision because it's look. Do you want to? You know, he it was his first sort of film, and he wanted people to see it. And so um, it didn't really, you know, was it going to get into a whole bunch of A-list festivals? Mm, maybe it would have done one or two, maybe, but it probably would have done B's and C's and spent a year on the festival circuit and been shown, you know, I've done that. And you are at small festivals screening for five people 
or 10 people. And if you're lucky, you're in a program and of, of shorts and you're in a theater and it's full and people- So by everyone, getting it up on Steam, you can have those same five people yeah, in I a thousand say, cities all yeah. watch it at the same time. And I think it was, it was just an, it was an interesting experiment in how fast we could turn something around and get it out. And so we, he, he opted to get it up right away. So we got it up. It was up in two weeks. So this is you leveraging current technology yeah, to do something. But I mean, I think it's, I, th I would say it's exactly the same. I think that if you want to, if you want to really have that piece of work have an impact, you need to have it finished. And then you need to figure out how you market that and how you get it to the people. Yep. And if you're not thinking about that last step, you're doing yourself a disservice and you're not really honoring all that work that has to go in to get to that point. Yeah, because nobody knows about it. Like, I, I mean, most of most of our roster, most of the people that like the, the, the creative talent that we represent is, is f you know, they're 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 new they're or they're um, they're moderately established. Uh, they're not famous uh you know, they're not famous to such a degree that uh, they become, um, <laughs> you know, a self-sustaining industry themselves, which is, you know, where you, you just put the, the, the author's name on a book and, and that will sell the book, whether it's uh, good writing or bad writing. Um, so, you know, for us, we have to, number one, we have to make sure that we're, we're publishing quality work. That's the big thing. Because if we're not, it'll be discovered awfully quick. And then, uh, you know, make sure that it's properly edited. Um, because that's a, that's that's the, the biggest part of a quality book is is and there there I should say there are good editors and there are bad editors. Um, there there are well edited books and there are poorly edited books out and there. And editing comes with a certain amount of style too, right? You can yeah. tell, like in film, you can tell yeah. sometimes who edited a film. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or I well, yeah. I mean my. Um, I I would always know what who the editor is going in, so my <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's probably coloring my bias a little <laughs> bit. Cheat. Filmmaking is not about the tiny details; it's about the big picture. Isn't there like oh, the famous story, like um, Star Wars Episode One, or uh, like new the very first Star Wars in the seventies was saved by the editors? Like it was a yeah. every film in the history of film has saved. been saved okay. by the editors. <laughs> 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 to some degree, that's true in in, in publishing too. Um, a lot of writers are are great creative writers, um, but 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 editors um, are able to to you know tighten those bolts and really make uh, a, a solid book into a, a, a great book. Um, and part of that is 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 knowing when to trim uh, you know a passage uh, you know to to create um, you know pace uh, to eliminate you know, stilted dialogue or, um, you know, uh, maybe, maybe it, maybe a chapter should start here rather than there, uh, because it, it, it creates a, uh, a completely different, um, scenario for the reader. Um, so, I mean, those are, those are the things that, uh, that you rely on when it comes to the, uh, to the editorial process. I, I think that's a big thing for us is, is that we expect all of our, all of the books that we publish, all of the authors that we represent, that uh, that they will submit wholly and completely to the editorial process. Right. I all mean, we can do is submit. I think what's interesting is even when what, what Gregory started out saying is that we have the same job title, but maybe we have different jobs. But what you just described was rhythm. Yes. Rhythm, yeah. Yeah, and no matter what, I think editing is about 
establishing rhythm. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to have that rhythm. You have, uh, r- you know, even, even like some of the worst readers, people who, who read junk know when they're, uh, they're, they're being duped. <laughs> um, when they're, when they're reading something that's just been overmarketed and they've been suckered, you know, um, the best readers, Emperor's know new sure. clothes kind of moment, right? Well, exactly. Like, you know, you could, you could name a long list of, of, of the stuff that's, that's out there and, and publishers, uh, especially the larger ones are notorious for jumping on, uh, bandwagons to, 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 to sell a book based on, uh, a previous book that, that did well. So let's, you know, let's, let's get our own version of that in there. Um, and, you know, I think readers are aware of that because they will Remember sell copies. Remember in the late 90s when there were so many meteor movies? Yeah. <laughs> there were so many meteors are going to hit the earth Well, movies. I'm sure the film industry is notorious yeah. for that too, right? Oh, everyone just copies everybody. Right. I mean, it, it, it's or so, it's terrible. we all terrible. the same idea at the same time? Uh, I don't think so. I think, well, I think there is something to be said about ideas floating around in the air and everyone sort of coming to the same conclusion. And we've seen that there's... There's examples of that in science. Sure. Even people yeah. having the same discovery on either end of the planet. Yeah. Um, Once the constituent parts are present on Earth, and we yeah. can all sort of draw some conclusions. Uh, to a certain extent, we're all pulling from the same zeitgeist, or zeitgeist, however you prefer to pronounce that word. But Okay, I have a, I have a different sort of question for you guys. I'm looking across the table <laughs> at Mr. Sanders here, and I'm realizing that uh, in the course of our creative pursuits, there's a number of times when um, I had like very dangerous near-death experiences. One time at Pinawa Dam Were they all with me? Mind, and a number of them were with you. We were uh, trying to get a shot. We were up on, you know, it was like 15 stories. And Mike leans over to me and he says, I'm going to get the shot. Hold my belt. And I held onto his belt and I leaned him out over 15 stories. And man, he got the shot. So gen- uh, the Hold other gentleman belt. here... <laughs> Well, you know Have why? you ever because had any the belt won't break? You hope it doesn't, but it's hopefully made of strong leather. Up. Yeah, as long as it's done up. So, <laughs> gentlemen, have there been any near-death experiences in your uh, creative endeavors? Or sh- <laughs> a hold my belt experience? Yeah. Um, you know, for publishing, uh, for my own work personally, um, sure. I mean, there's a. I think, I think anytime you're you're going to put something out there. And you're not just going to store it in your, uh, you know, your your night table beside your bed. I think that, um, you know, if you if you think of like the sort of the C.S. Lewis commentary, which is, you know, anytime you put something down, it's it's it's, it's beyond brave. I think that there's uh, there's a lot of truth to that because um, there's a lot of ego too, um, whether you want to admit it or not. Putting stuff on the page and expecting somebody to want to read it. Uh, definitely demands uh, that y- you have some level of ego. But um, I think there's also a flip side to that. I have a great deal of anxiety uh, over over stuff, m- my own personal work and work that we publish uh, through the press, which is, <laughs> you know, is anybody actually going to read it? Are they going to like it? Did did I totally screw this up? Um, and And I definitely struggle with that. Um, so for me, every time I do something, it, for me, it feels like I'm out on a limb for sure. And that there, there is a, you know, a a few, uh, you know, 
saw marks at the end of the limb. Yeah. Right. I've, I've been to uh, Las Vegas a number of times, but I don't gamble at all. And people always say like, oh, you don't gamble. I'm like, yeah, I do. I, uh, I'm in publishing. Yeah. Right. It's, it's just I'm fine. In the art it's, world. It's all on the line. Right? It's all on the line. So there was sure. this one time we were at a convention. We had driven there and we'd driven with a van packed with the great thing about driving to conventions versus we fly to, you know, like 20 conventions all over the world. But when we drive, we get to bring everything, right? As many books as we can carry, as many canvases, <laughs> as many posters. Like we, we top that van right up as full as we can get. So when we get to the show, it's overkill, which draws a whole whack of, you know, new people versus our standard setup. So we went and we did the show and it was just me and Greg. We drove out. It was like a 12 hour drive. We drove there. It was the, uh, the Edmonton Comic Con. We drove there, we did the show, and the goal, the entire show, was to sell enough stuff <laughs> that we could clear out the back oh, seat of the van yeah. so that somebody could sleep on the way home while the other person drives. Beautiful. Right? We were just trying to sell, like, X amount of pounds yeah. to, like, Sleeps. get that and room. And we did it. By and we God, did it. we did it. It was a great <laughs> show. We moved all this big stuff. We, we had an empty box dance at the end of the show. And uh, Greg had done like a good chunk of driving on the way there. So it was my turn to, to dr drive back. And we're about four hours into the trip. And I'm sitting at the, I'm driving. And behind like a mountain of stuff somewhere in the back, there is a Gregory laid out in the back seat sleeping. And the, the road between Edmonton and Saskatoon, there is nothing. You were in the middle of nowhere with, uh, it's actually quite beautiful because there's no lights, so the sky is, is completely lit up with stars and you can see the northern so lights. And a serene moment. I'm Calm, having a great time. Peaceful. Suddenly, Greg jumps up and <laughs> screams at the top of his lungs. Some kind of form of night terror or, or something. I, I don't know what you said. I had a completely vivid dream that you had driven onto the that you had fallen asleep. I was asleep, dreaming that you had fallen asleep. And so I woke up like terrified that I had to leap forward and grab the wheel. Luckily, I did not swerve the vehicle. <laughs> but it was quite the shock and I damn near swerved. Okay, so what I'm learning from this <laughs> is that the commonality between the likelihood that you may die in a creative endeavor, I'm the common element. You're saying You're we haven't known each other long enough for you oh, to nearly man. die as a result of uh, your creative passions. Hey, look out! Stop! Oh, dear. Hit the brake! Hey! That's part of the fun, right? Like, it's part of the experience. It's part of uh, doing what you do. So. The anxiety and the stress? Yeah. It's part of the, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be able to, to I think you have to, be, you know, be able to, uh, to live with it. Uh, you have to be at peace with the suffering? Yes. Yes. Because I think there's, in this modern age, there's this whole idea, like, you should try to avoid stress, right? Like, stress is somehow bad. That's such yeah, bullshit. I think it's total bullshit. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there's a healthy way to obviously yeah. handle stress, yeah. and there's an unhealthy way to handle stress. There's a healthy amount of stress, and there's yeah. an unhealthy amount of stress. Sure. And, there is. and stress is a conditioned emotional response. Yeah. So, if you're feeling super stressed out because your job grinds you in the same repetitive motion every day, right? Yep. That's You're a being told, feeling, yeah. avoid stress, take this pill, mostly yeah. so that you can keep doing that repetitive job. Right. Yeah. Not because you're trying to avoid stress, necessarily. Stress is the way of your metabolism uh, and your brain telling you, there's, you need to change some behavior in order to alter course here. Yeah, right? absolutely. But, but when you can't alter course, they offer, often offer medication. It's, it's so weird that you say that because this morning, I don't know what I was listening to, but this, you know, 
this saying that I keep hearing over and over in the last few years that the universe is trying to tell you, you know, people like to say that now, the, sure. the, the universe is trying to tell you something. I would just take that word universe and replace it with your brain. Yeah. <laughs> your brain is trying to tell you something. Right. Um, yeah, I think stress is a very strong indicator that either you have to be, uh, you're, you either, it's gearing you up for the energy you need to yeah, your brain is the a recognition machine to it's actually get the job done. Yeah, I know personally, I subconsciously prep myself for long. Uh, the, one of the f a film I did about a year ago, I cut the majority of the film in a 48 hour stretch of editing where I slept for uh, two, three hour naps. Um, in the few days leading up to that, I kind of knew that's what I was going to that's seemed like the best way to get it out you mentally prepared I yourself. mentally prepared myself and I had the energy to push through those 48 hours of editing if I were to just do that tonight I would fall asleep at around right. 11 o'clock yeah without the preparation <laughs> without that mental preparation absolutely yeah. yeah well and we have to do that for shows right it's three days it's like basically 46 hours of work over three days we have a show right. at the yeah. end of the month coming up four days like 12 hour days yeah. with a drive in front of it and it's like if yeah, we were 16 hour drive in front of it and then yeah. you work 48 yeah. hours like yeah, physically and mentally yeah you got to yeah. get yeah and ready I think your that. body your body listens to you yeah yeah. The week before, I try to eat so good and sleep yeah. so sure. well and exercise a lot. And well, just, like this morning, I yeah. actually I actually ate breakfast and I drank a lot of water because I didn't <laughs> want to be <laughs> lethargic and like what on the you know I've sure. had way too much caffeine this morning. I'll tell you that much. But well, you know, uh, I do think though that you can, um, based on the amount of work that you're doing, you can hit a wall. Oh yeah. Um, and I think that it will happen. You know, more than once, especially if you're in a career in the arts. But uh, I, I, I mean, just based on even what you were saying about you know prepping before the work, uh, the week is you know you got a you got a tough week coming up or a tough couple of days. You're like, I'm gonna get some extra sleep. Uh, you know, I'm gonna make sure that my diet is 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 appropriate. Uh, you know, exercise that sort of thing. I think all that stuff is great, um, and I think that it helps. But I think sometimes uh, knowing uh, your limitations because uh, I think that I think that some artists uh, believe that you know I can just push through it always and I don't think that that's the case I think that uh, I think that you have to know your limitations I think that you have to be able to um, you and know forgive your limitations right? yeah absolutely yeah. and step away from the board a bit and just be like you know I remember illustrating um this is this is going back years ago. I just I just couldn't get one panel right, and I was struggling with it like crazy. And I must have erased it and redrawn it, uh, you know, twenty five times, and it just it just looked awful. It just wasn't working. So I gave up. And then the next day I came back and first try. You know, I just needed that that breather. I needed to to reset. Um, and I think that that's important. I think that that's important too. I mean, all nighters sometimes have to happen. Yeah. But I, I don't always believe that the best work is done. I used to think that, but I don't <laughs> always believe that the best work is done by just grinding through it. 
No, absolutely not. Yeah. I, I should say, like, that you. example of pushing through was pushing through to get something completed so that I could then look back on it and look at it as a whole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt that if I was just going to, like, eke it out over a couple weeks, I would be better served if I could just do it and then take two days off and then look back at it and go, I see what's, I see what I need to do there. Right. So, right, right drunk and edit sober. Right drunk and edit sober. <laughs> Super Pulp Science does not endorse... <laughs> <laughs> the behaviors of its guests, um, uh, even though we endorse our guests <laughs> pretty regularly. Um, all right, I, gentlemen. Well, this has been Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. Um, we have had two wonderful guests and one suffering co-host here today. Matt, thank you very much from Matt Bay Press, thanks. and Mike from Electric Monk Media. Thank yeah, you so thank much you. for coming. And Justin, um, I'll see you next week, whether you like it or not. This is Gregor (laughs) Kamichuk encouraging all of you to join the fight and make comments.